You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. If you don't know me, my name is Mark. I'm normally down at the Collingwood Park location, but today I'm here. I have been to the Collingwood Park location this morning because I thought it would be a good idea for me to go down there and sanitise the toilets in terms of the COVID-19 requirements for the building. And also, it's a good thing to do to humble yourself before you preach. So I'm here, flushed with humility, after an appearance at the bowl. (laughs) Pretty awful jokes there, hey? Well, that's the end of the toilet humour for today, folks. We're going to get stuck into it. We are doing a series called Housing the Holy Spirit. I'm so glad we're doing that. It's, it's just awesome that, we're gonna, that we are moving into to something different and perhaps a new dimension for all of us in the Holy Spirit. Yeah? You want that? Now listen, listen. Let's, let's cultivate responsiveness. Let's, let's do that. I'll preach better. I will. So we are doing housing the Holy Spirit and my topic is walking with the Spirit. So we belong as a church, Centro Church belongs as a church, to a movement called Australian Christian Churches. As a movement, we are from the Pentecostal teaching tradition, which means Holy Spirit is front and centre. He should be front and centre anyway, but we particularly put an emphasis on Holy Spirit as, as part of our worship, as part of our walk with God. And that is a New Testament requirement. To, to just start us off, we're going to read a foundational scripture. It's one we're going to read probably every week. It's from the book of 2 Samuel. And, uh, and it's a scripture that will, it's the big idea that supports this series. And no doubt we'll circle back to this on a, on a weekly basis just to anchor ourselves in this scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 6 And it's verses 11 and 12. Let's read it together. Verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything everything he has is because of the ark of God. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So first, the ark. The the ark. Let's get our arcs right. We're talking about the ark of the covenant ark. Okay, so that's the Raiders of the Lost ark ark, not the Noah's ark ark. So we have to get, we have to actually get our arcs in order, first of all. Now, we have a picture of it. If we could have that that picture up, it's it's actually an impressive piece of furniture. There it is. Look at it. You can't actually buy one of those from Ikea. Well, I suppose you could. Yeah, it's, it's actually made of acacia wood and covered inside and out with gold. If you got one from Ikea, it would be made of chipboard and covered inside and out with gold vinyl coming in a flat pack to your door. But this one wasn't made in a flat pack. By the time we get to the part in our story, it's centuries old. It was made to last. And see those two little guys on top? Between them, that's where the presence of God lived in the Old Testament. God restricted himself to a place between the cherubim on top of the ark. That ark was usually inside a, a tabernacle, a tent, and, or, or a temple. It was in a, a particular holy place that was walled off from the rest of the, the temple. And only, could, only one type of person could go there. You had to be from a particular tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi, and then even then from a particular family. And then you could only go in once a year. 
Now, that's all gone, and we have access to the presence of God wherever we are, yeah? You need to get excited right about now. And so it said, the Bible just says that this guy called Obed-Edom had the presence of God delivered to his house. He was just standing there minding his own business and knock on the door and some guys walk in with this Ark of the Covenant and they ask him where he'd like it, over there in the corner. Imagine if his friends came over to visit and they'd say, what's that? And he'd say, well, that's God. He's here in my lounge room. And, and that, that presents a picture. That presents a picture to us that we can have God in our lounge rooms and we should have God in our lounge rooms because we carry him with us. And, and it says that the Lord blessed him. Now, the ark being there means blessing. Now, it doesn't just mean that he says, oh, I kind of feel like I've got more peace or I've got this really syrupy, gooey feeling. No, it says the Lord blessed him. And in the Old Testament, blessing meant material blessing. It meant livestock. It meant wealth and wives and wives. Material benefits, in other words. And all of this became evident in three months. So the blessing of the Lord that is, is coming from this, this piece of furniture is substantial and noticeable because the king noticed it. So the big idea is that you, we can have the presence of God in our house. If you do that, you're really positioning yourself to be blessed. So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, except in contrast to Obed-Edom, we're going to talk about him from a New Testament point of view, We are housing a person, not a thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's not a thing. He's not an it, but a he. I heard that American Christians were surveyed and they were asked, is the Holy Spirit a force or a person? And 70% of them said a force. Wrong. He's a person. That's just sad, I think. Now, we have to understand that in the Old Testament, in terms, of, in terms of people relating to the Holy Spirit, it was an age of visitation, totally, what, totally different to what we have in the New Testament. Sometimes Holy Spirit would come upon a particular person for a particular purpose, but then he would slip back into the background. He would come upon a specific person, a prophet, a judge, a priest, or a king, but then he would depart. He didn't remain. He merely visited. It was an age of visitation. And predominantly, it was for something supernatural, like having children in in old age, interpreting dreams, prophecy, calling down fire from heaven and outrunning chariots and stuff like that. But it was always for a power moment, not necessarily for a holiness or character moment. The Holy Spirit would come for a moment, but not for always. For instance, I believe Pastor Tim talked about Samson last week. Samson is a a character in the Old Testament. He was a judge in Israel. And the Bible says that the Spirit came upon Samson and he was able to do great things. He tore a lion apart with his bare hands. He killed large numbers of Philistines with various bones and things like that. Because the Holy Spirit was on him, he was able to do things that were beyond his humanness. But he didn't get more holy. He didn't develop character because of those things. In fact, he seemed to get even more reprobate and further away from God the more he did. See, the Holy Spirit would attach himself to a person for particular moments of power, but then retreat into the background 
he didn't come to stay. That's why we see in the Psalms, King David say, take not your Holy Spirit from me. When he's praying, he says, cast me not from your presence, Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he'd seen his predecessor, the previous king, Saul, he'd seen the Spirit depart from him. And Saul was, was acting as king, but without the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's how it all happened in an age of visitation. But there was always a different age to come. The age we live in now, the New Testament age, and the age in the New Testament is an age of habitation. In the Old Testament, it was visitation. In the New Testament, it's habitation. That is to say that since the cross of Jesus, when we have overcome by the blood of Jesus our sinfulness, our separation from God, we are now worthy vessels to house the Holy Spirit. The separation between us and God is dealt with and the Holy Spirit can come and take up permanent residence in us. That's how it happens. That's the best news. Let's read a scripture that just defines that for us. It's in the book of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 27. We'll just read the first line. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. That means the presence, the Holy Spirit, lives in us. He guides us into truth. He convicts people of sin. He is a comforter, an advocate, and the Greek word parakletos, someone who is called alongside to help. And you remember that that verse that Paul says in in the, the book of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The Spirit of Christ lived in Paul and lives in us. Please understand that what we're talking about here, life with the Holy Spirit, is a mystical life. Therefore, following Jesus is a mystical life. Please don't be frightened off by that word mystical. Mysticism, mystic. We, 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 we get worried about that word. We're thinking of Eastern mysticism, but mysticism is a blanket term. A mystic is someone who has moved from a mere belief system, someone who has a mental assent to something and, or, to a, or has a belonging system. You belong to a particular group of people. A mystic is someone who moves from that to an actual inner experience of what they believe. That is a mystic. Therefore, that makes us all mystics, yeah? Yep. Jesus was a mystic, Paul was, James is, James was, John was, we all are. The fact that we are following Jesus and we have Holy Spirit living in us makes us mystical creatures by definition and nothing else, nothing less. We have to understand that at the very moment we give our lives to Jesus, Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us. When we acknowledge him as saviour, we become an old-fashioned word, indwelt or possessed by Holy Spirit. There's another person at the wheel of our lives. Sometimes we don't let him steer, but when we do, he moves us gently and gradually and incrementally more and more towards the character of Jesus. Unlike in the Old Testament, where he was there for power, this time he's here indwelling us moving us towards the character of Christ. We need to have a working understanding of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He literally takes up residence in us and doesn't leave. 
Sometimes he moves us so gently and subtly and slowly that we hardly notice the change in ourselves. But you would have experienced a time when maybe you haven't seen a person for a few years after you've been walking with Jesus. And they've said, gee, you've changed. And you haven't really noticed the extent of that change. Because Holy Spirit produces what the Bible says is fruit. They're actually the character traits of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I'm sorry that I've memorised them in the King James. I'll read a more up-to-date version for you from the New International Version. But the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 23, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are nine things there that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives to produce. He is about producing fruit or the characteristics of Jesus. These things are not commands that we have to keep. They're not something that we have to live up to or aspire to. They are a byproduct of the life of the Holy Spirit living within us through the cumulative effect of the indwelling Holy Spirit coupled with what we do, teaching, discipleship, community. There comes formation into Christ-likenesses. Your end goal is Jesus of Nazareth to be like him. So let me ask you a question. If you had to choose between Jesus living with you and Holy Spirit living in you, which one would you choose? Would you like to have physical Jesus standing here so you're able to ask him questions or the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Which would you like? It's not a trick question. Answer it within yourself. Don't call out your answers. I think most of us would say we'd like physical Jesus standing here beside us, a person that we can, hey Jesus, should I do that sort of thing? We live in a material world. We would want the material, physical presence of Jesus with us. We are consumed by what we can see and feel and touch. The materiality of this life is what we're focused on. Therefore, we would want material Jesus, physically present, yes? But what would Jesus say? If you ask Jesus that same question, physical Jesus present, Holy Spirit inside, what would he say? Jesus would say, the Holy Spirit in you is better than him with you. Actually, he did say that. Book of John, chapter 16, verses 5 to 7. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advocate, of course, is Holy Spirit. Now, you could understand this. You could understand that the disciples would be a bit bit iffy about doing life without physical Jesus present. They would be at a disadvantage. Without Jesus, who would who would heal the sick, who would raise the dead. Without Jesus, how would anyone know what the breaking in of the kingdom of God would look like? But Jesus says, it is for your good that I'm going away because God has Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you. The disciples were uncomfortable. But God is quite happy to lead us into discomfort so we will rely on the comforter. Yeah? That's a good quote, write it on the toilet wall. A relationship with the Holy Spirit is not a one-off experience. It's a way of life. He's with us for the long haul. Let's look at another passage. 
This passage is in 2 Corinthians. It's about the relationship that we as followers of Jesus have to God's presence via the Holy Spirit in the here and now. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 to 18. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, and particularly the writings of Paul, when he says Lord, he means who? Jesus. Yeah, that's right, the Lord. But here he says, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When we find that place of God's presence, the Spirit, there is freedom. He's writing about how people are set free from life-controlling problems by the presence of the Spirit. Now look at this, verse 18, it says, And we all, who with unveiled faces, don't worry about that, that just means that we're Christians, we're followers of Jesus, we have full-on access to God, all of us, not just one or two of us, we with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. So as we live into relationship with Holy Spirit, call it what you like, abiding, abiding life, practicing the presence of God, contemplative prayer, intimacy with God, call it what you like, whatever language you wish to use there. The idea is that you live into relationship with God. Communication, backwards and forwards, daily. And watch what happens. It says we are being transformed. Transformed. That word in the Greek is metamorpho. It means the transition from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's a real transition. A complete radical overhaul of your entire person from the inside out into what? Into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the voice of our redeemed design echoing in our souls. He engineers a radical transformation from our inferior mindset to our revealed authentic identity. That's what his job is. We are constantly being renewed in God's image. See, we can't transform ourselves just through willpower. You know, if we grit our teeth and, and make a really ugly face and internally hemorrhage, and that, we can't change ourselves. We need outside help. We need power present within us. Now, this transformation comes about in two ways. Just give me a few moments and we'll walk through this process. There are breakthrough moments and there are process moments. Breakthrough moments are those rare, one-off, usually unplanned moments when God dramatically accelerates your transformation. Most of the time, the normal pace of transformation is slow, almost glacial. It's hard work. We inch forward one day at a time, but breakthrough moments are when we're touched by Holy Spirit and we leap forward in our growth and our maturity, not necessarily from A to Z, but maybe from A to D or E or F, something like that. What would normally take years of teaching, discipleship and community is done in a prayer, in a moment, in, a, in an encounter, maybe in church, maybe at a camp. It doesn't have to be. It can happen in your living room. It's easy enough to have encounters there as it is to have them anywhere. St. Paul, on the road to Damascus, has an encounter with God and is changed from top to bottom in a moment. He goes from uh, persecuting the church to preaching the gospel. God does a deep, profound, miraculous work of release. That's why we ask people to come forward for prayer so we can experience 
those breakthrough moments because we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to do rapid transformation. These breakthrough moments are brilliant, they're wonderful, but they're also rare. Sometimes because of our lack of availability to them, our lack of availability to the presence of God and what he wants to do through a lack of connection, not having time with God, but mainly it's because there are some virtues the Holy Spirit wants to develop in us that can only be developed in the blast furnace of everyday life. We inch forward. We develop character. Holy Spirit within us, moving us towards the character of Jesus. In the boredom, in the mundane, reading Leviticus, going to connect group with the same seven or eight people that you've been with for years and years. Those moments are actually producing something. They're helping Holy Spirit produce character in us. The everyday trudging forward of death to self moments, of spiritual disciplines, of life in community and repentance and forgiveness, of giving our time and money, all of those things are moving us forward, as Friedrich Nietzsche called it, a long obedience in the same direction produces character. And most of the time when people speak of breakthrough moments, they're talking about moments of deliverance, freedom from uh, life-controlling problems, freedom from oppression and healing, things like that. I was set free or I was healed mental illness or, or physical illness or something like that. But I rarely ever, if, if ever, hear about breakthrough moments that are about character. Like, I was an impatient jerk and, and then I got prayed for and now I'm just the nicest guy ever and I'm just this non-anxious presence and I love everyone. You rarely hear of things like that. Breakthrough moments are brilliant but nine times out of ten, they're about freedom and healing. The deep character change comes as a byproduct of process moments. And process moments are those thousands of regular, planned, ordinary moments where we are slowly but surely changed by what Jesus called abiding daily with him. So we're still changed by the Holy Spirit, but it's just not in a moment. It's in a thousand small, ordinary moments. Abiding in Jesus is the starting place. It's the beginning and the end of everything in following him. So let's just talk for a moment about maximizing Holy Spirit's work within us. How do we do that? The first and I think most important goal is just to slow down from the hurry and the noise and the business of everyday life and just to, to slow down and spend time with him and to set our mind on God and, to his, and on his goodness, to direct and redirect our minds towards him because there's so many distractions. And as we do this and we utilise spiritual disciplines like, like scripture reading, praying, practising a, a Sabbath rest or a communion time, fasting, gathering together like we're doing now, all of those things help us to maximise the Holy Spirit's transformation of us. Just to take time to anchor ourselves in an awareness of God and connection to him, to be partners with him in conversation. I recommend you, you spend 20 minutes every morning before you actually turn your phone on, before you actually look at your phone, of just, just spending time with God without actually saying anything, just being there, being aware of his presence. If you get distracted, you redirect your mind back to him because there are, there are so many multi-billion dollar corporations out there with multi-billion dollar advertising budgets trying to steal your attention and addict you to their product. So we have to just spend that time of centering every morning. Try it. Don't, 
take my word for it, try it and see if things don't improve. The call of Jesus is to a constant, conscious communion with him, the abiding life as opposed to a life of distraction. Now, at first, this might seem clumsy, it might seem difficult in the initial stages, but as we do it more often, it becomes habit, it becomes easier. We've experienced what Paul called in the book of Romans, the renewing of our mind. Our, our neurological system actually participates in its own formation. As you progress in this discipline of silence with God, we'll actually come to be able to stay in the reality of God's presence without being distracted. I recommend it, even through the pressure and stress of our lives. If you were a Christian in, from Jesus' time up until a couple, of one, a couple of hundred years ago, you would have been taken through three stages in your Christian development. You'd have been taken, actually four, the awakening stage is actually coming to know Jesus. But number one was purgation. That's the, that's the working out of your life of, of sin. Illumination, that's where you, where you get teaching. And finally, the, 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 the last stage was union. And that is always the last stage of our transformation. That is the end goal. Union with God. Yeah? Union with him. That is the end goal. It's not position. It's not the capacity to do things. It's not... It's not abilities, it's not manifestation of gifts of the Spirit. The, the end goal is always union, to live in constant conscious communion with him. The defining book, everybody has like a book that really means something to them. The defining book in my life is one called The Practice of the Presence of God by, by a French monk called Brother Lawrence. It's only a tiny book, it's about that one. And his theory was that you could experience the presence of God all the time. He said the hour of prayer and the hour of business should be the same. Yeah? Should they be the same? Okay, let's drop into something that's perhaps even more mystical. If the Old Testament was an age of visitation for power and the New Testament is the age of habitation for Christ-likeness, we need to also understand that walking with the Holy Spirit contains a component of power. A power. There's a power component to our New Testament life. And even that is more permanent than the Old Testament visitation model. In walking with Holy Spirit, walking with God, there is a second experience after salvation. The book of Acts makes that clear. We need to have a thorough working knowledge of the indwelling Holy Spirit moving us towards Christ-likeness, but we also need to have a knowledge of the second experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. It sounds exotic, doesn't it? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's like the Count of Monte Cristo or the treasure of Sierra Madre. How about you focus here? <laughs> okay. It's a power experience. If the indwelling Holy Spirit is for holiness and Christ-likeness, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for power. Jesus modelled this kind of, of life in the story of his own baptism. When he came to John the Baptist in, in the River Jordan, 
He came out of the water, the heavens opened, and the Father spoke, and then the Holy Spirit came and rested on him like a dove. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. In the natural, if I have a dove sitting on me, I'm aware of it, aren't I? I'm aware of it. If I have a dove sitting there, doves are flighty birds, I will make every step with the dove in mind. And that's a picture of how we work with Holy Spirit. Jesus then heads into the desert where he fasts for 40 days and is tempted by, by the devil, it says, mainly to use his power for himself. But he survives that and he comes back into Galilee, the Bible says, in the power of the Spirit, and that's when the miracles start happening. All of this is available to us. Let's, let's be clear on that. All of this is available to every follower of Jesus. Let's read a passage from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Now, what's happened here is, is Jesus has already... He's already risen from the dead. He's speaking to his disciples. There was a moment where he's already said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, and he's breathed on them. This is something in addition to that. Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them his, this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard, heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. At this moment, the disciples have already received Jesus. They're already saved, if we can put it like that. But Jesus is talking about an experience in addition to salvation. He says, don't attempt anything. Don't leave Jerusalem. Don't Don't try ministry without this. It's so important. He says, the baptism of the Holy Spirit... You need it before you try ministry, before you leave Jerusalem, to be clothed in power. Now, how does this transpose onto our life? There is, there is four occasions in the book of Acts where, where actually people are actually baptised in the Holy Spirit. And the one I, one I want to read now is, is one late in the book, in chapter 19. It's where, where, where Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds this group of believers and he asks them, have you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And they said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? And so he realises that they haven't, they're not actually saved. They haven't experienced salvation. So he baptises them in the name of, the Jesus, uh, name of Jesus. Acts 19, 5. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now they've given their lives to Jesus. They're saved. Then verse 6. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Speaking in tongues is an evidence. It's something that happens when people get baptised in the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. You shouldn't be worried about that. You shouldn't be thinking that that's something weird or that, that only people in cults do. It's something that Christians practice. It's something we as Pentecostal Christians believe is, is frontmost and foremost in our walks with God. It is actually a prayer language. Don't confuse it with another, uh, another mention of speaking in tongues, which is the gift of tongues, which must be interpreted. That's a gift of the Spirit. 
that's separate. This is a prayer language that we can all have, that we can all use every day, and it will build us up. The Apostle Paul said it builds us up in our most holy faith when we speak in tongues. One of the foremost researchers, and I'll give you a bit of background on this in case, you, in case it worries you, one of the foremost researchers in the field of neurology is a guy called Andrew Newberg. He's done studies on what happens in the brain when people actually speak in tongues. He contrasted, he had several control groups, he had some nuns doing centering prayer, he had some evangelicals just praying, he had some people singing, and he had some Pentecostals speaking in tongues. The Pentecostals speaking in tongues, there was no activity in the frontal lobe of the brain, nothing. Nothing was going on in the brain. All the others, the brain was active, the frontal lobe was active. But the Pentecostals speaking in tongues, there was nothing. What was actually happening was they were speaking in something that actually bypassed their brain. And as Newberg actually got his head around it, he, be, he actually began to cry. He said, this is something powerful. And he's, he's not a Christian, he's, he's a Jewish guy. He said, this is something powerful. This is people speaking to God from deep within themselves, bypassing their own thinking. Folks, that is, that is a powerful thing. It's a powerful weapon. It's something incredible to have in our armory, and it is available to all of us. Holy Spirit in us is to produce Christ-likeness. The Holy Spirit on us, baptism of the Holy Spirit, is for power. So when we walk with the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to be formed into the image, likeness and, and character of Jesus. The, the transformation is slow and steady, but there can be moments of breakthrough. All of that is for us. On top of that, Holy Spirit also equips us with power to deliver the miraculous. It's a gateway to the supernatural, to bring supernatural moments into everyday life, to be agents of the kingdom, to be dispensers of the kingdom of God in our environment that we live and move and work in every day. Holy Spirit is in you for you, but he's on you for others. In you for transformation, on you for ministry. I just want to close quickly with a story. The musicians could, could join me. On Mother's Day 1980, in a church in Anaheim, in America, Vineyard Church in Anaheim, they had a guest preacher that day. His name was Lonnie Frisbee. Time magazine credits him with leading over two million people to Jesus in the Jesus People movement. He came to preach. The pastor there was a, a little bit sceptical about him, but as he stood up, he preached a message that the pastor couldn't fault. He thought, it was, he thought it was wonderful, theologically sound, articulately delivered. But then at the end of it, Frisbee asked everybody to, to bow their heads, and they did. And all he said was, Holy Spirit, come, and nothing more. And Holy Spirit came. Unbelievably. The, the presence of God in the room was, was so heavy and so dense that all of the musicians just collapsed on the stage. One began speaking in tongues and he was the worship leader and he had the microphone 
stuck to his mouth. So it was coming through the system everywhere. Everyone could hear it. That church was transformed in that moment. And over the next decades, the next couple of decades, they saw many people won to Christ because they were open to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I want to ask you this morning, Holy Spirit needs an invitation. He's a gentleman. Is there an invitation in you this morning? Is there an invitation in your heart for Him? Maybe you're someone who hasn't yet received Jesus. Maybe you don't have Holy Spirit indwelling you. Maybe you're someone who, who needs that moment of breakthrough. Or maybe you've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you'd like to. Is there an invitation in your heart this morning? Thank you for listening to this podcast.